Um, so I'm going to talk to you guys a little bit today about uh, machine learning models from our mistakes. Um, and you might, uh, hopefully by the end of the talk, you'll understand why I titled it that. And if you don't, then you can tell me and I'll rename the talk. Um, but I, so I do machine learning, right? So I got a PhD at MIT uh, in the computer science department doing machine learning. Um, and I focused on machine learning in health and in healthcare. And you might uh, be thinking, like, what do you mean? Machine learning and health, is that even a thing? That sounds crazy. But actually, this is already happening, right? So there are already machine learning models that are being used in real healthcare settings. And if you take the you know, sort of simplest uh, view of what an algorithm is, of what a machine learning model might be, you know, just adding up numbers, doing operations, and getting a score, that's been going on for decades, right? So doctors have been using these calculated risk scores for a really long time. What's a little bit different now is that we have at or above human level performance across a range of tasks in the human lifespan, right? So this is no longer let me just have this one specific score that has a little risk calculator. This is now a really robust set of tools that could be used for the benefit of mankind, right? People are sort of on board with this. It feels like it's a big deal. Um, let's talk a little bit. Let's take a step back and talk a little bit about how we do this. So what we do is we get clinical data from practice and knowledge, right? What I mean by that is, uh, you know, doctors practice, right? They're in the hospital, they're in the clinic, and they're practicing. And so you can watch them practice. We can get the, the record, the database of everything that they did to a patient, and that's their practice, and we could learn, oh, what's the best kind of treatment that we can give to a patient based on all this practice that we can observe? The other thing we could learn from is knowledge, right? There's clinical textbooks, there's all of these papers that are in JAMA, the New England Journal, the Lancet, right? Like that's knowledge. So we could learn from those things. Uh, and then we can train these machine learning models. They could be simple or, or high capacity. And then finally, we try to predict stuff. We try to predict clinical events and treatments. And so you're probably all nodding now. You're like, oh, very nice, very nice. So like, why, why are we hearing about this in an ethics talk? But my question for you is, like, let's, let's think about that very first part for a minute, right? The part where I said, we get data from practice and knowledge. So the question is, how much do you trust your doctors? Because when you're learning from practice, you're learning from a human practicing, right? Uh, doctors are burnt out. So this is a pretty well-established fact. The, the uh, medical establishment is overloaded. So we ask doctors to do a significant amount of work, more than they have been asked to in previous years, and we don't give them more hours in the day, right? Like that's not a thing you can manufacture. And the consequence of that is that a lot of doctors don't feel like they have time to be empathetic, which is what you might you know, want from a doctor, actually. Uh, and another consequence of this is in the United States, estimates vary, but uh, one contentious estimate says that medical malpractice, medical error, could be the third leading cause of death. Whether you believe that statistic or not, and many people do not because of the, the assumptions that are made in what is a medical error, the reality is that doctors are humans and humans make mistakes. And so if you're learning from practice, you are learning from mistakes. Let's say that we're afraid of that, and instead we want to learn from knowledge, right? Let's not watch these doctors practice and then learn from those hospital records. That's scary. Let's learn from these, these you know, randomized controlled trials, which are gold standard. So you've probably all heard about randomized controlled trials. Uh, they advertise them in the subway, right? 
We are investigating the effect of medication A on people between the ages of 18 and 22, but only if they're this and that and this and that, right? So these, that's a randomized controlled trial. There's inclusion criteria and they test things and then they see what result they get. So the issue with randomized controlled trials is they're actually pretty rare. So only 10 to 20% of the treatments that are currently used in the hospital, like in, in a, a clinical setting, are based on a randomized controlled trial. And that's not because doctors are malicious. It's because these are really expensive to run. If you try to run a randomized controlled trial, it is really hard. They're very challenging. But what's even worse in my mind is the, the matter of what happens when you do ran a, a run a randomized controlled trial. So if you take a common condition like asthma and you look at the, uh, the population that was selected for the randomized controlled trial, right? it turns out 94% of asthmatics who are being treated now would have been in the exclusion criteria for that trial. So only 6% of people being treated would have qualified for the RCTs that were used to design their treatment. That should make you unhappy because that means that a majority of people, a vast majority of people, could not have participated. And so the, the uh, final thing I'm going to leave you with with this uh, you know, picture of knowledge is let's look at papers and journals, right? That's not a randomized controlled trial. That's doctors writing about you know, things they figure out and what's going on in the field. But over 10% of the last 10 years of uh, 10,000, or sorry, 3,000 top journal studies from places like the New England Journal, the Lancet, uh, JAMA, were what we call medical reversals. That means an article came out where they said, the thing you've all been doing, the thing that all the doctors agreed is the best thing to do and is the current practice that's exactly wrong. Do the opposite thing. It's bad. And there are famous examples of this. So. Maybe we don't want to do machine learning at all, right? Maybe algorithms are bad. We shouldn't be learning from our data. But I'm going to argue in the rest of this talk that that is not true, that we do want to do machine learning in health. And the reason why is what happens now is if a patient goes to a doctor and asks them, can you find me a treatment? What she's really asking is what patients are like me, right? Can you figure out what has worked for other patients and then give me similar treatments? But human beings are actually remarkably unique. So even if we look at medical records, for 250 million patients, so they did a study where they looked at four countries, 250 million patients worth of records, and then they saw how many people, how many patients followed a completely unique treatment pathway. That means a set of medications shared by nobody, zero other people. In common conditions, so for esoteric conditions, you would say maybe, maybe, right? You have this weird cocktail of meds. But for common conditions like depression, diabetes, hypertension, you would think like, okay, maybe 1% of all people have a unique medication trajectory. But for diabetes, it's 10%. For depression, it's 11%. And for hypertension, it's 24%. What that means is if you have hypertension and you go to a doctor and you say, what patients are like me? Can you give me a treatment prediction based on people who have a treatment history similar to mine? The answer for a quarter of people would be nobody. There's nobody like you in this data set, even though it's 250 million people. So we're in a situation where we actually need to use complex models 
for this complex data because we can't just rely on the spot check of a little bit of practice, a little bit of knowledge, maybe an RCT here with huge exclusion criteria, maybe some medical records there, but there's no neighbors who look like you. We need to collect all of this medical data that's available and actually try to understand what it is that makes a person healthy and how to treat them best. So what my group does is machine learning for health, and we focus broadly on three themes. What models are healthy, that's what kind of models work well on this kind of data on the technical side. What kind of healthcare is healthy, then using those models to identify what kind of healthcare works best in context, and what kind of behaviors are healthy. So hopefully we can keep you out of the doctor's office rather than just studying you once you're in the doctor's office. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the work that we've done in what models are healthy and then ask some higher level questions in what healthcare is healthy. So this is a quick plug for uh, data openness, which I'll come back to. A majority of the work that is done in my field is done on one data set, the MIMIC data set. The MIMIC data set is created by a group of people at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and a group of uh, graduate students, postdocs, and professors at MIT. And it's an open data set, meaning once you have passed their uh, academic check, meaning you're affiliated with an academic institution of repute, and you've passed the appropriate training, you could just download this de-identified data set. And you can run state-of-the-art machine learning models on that data. And that's an incredible resource for a person like me. My research wouldn't exist without data like this. So here's the generalized thing we went over before. Remember, see some data, predict a thing. What we do is real-time prediction, meaning if we play our patient's record in real time, we reveal a new hour. Can we predict whether they need a drug, whether they're going to die, whether they'll have a particular condition by some gap time before a doctor would have acted? And that gap time is really important because if you tell a doctor a patient is going to die an hour before they die, well, the machines are off, duh, like they're going to die, like that's obvious. Um, my favorite example of this is I had a student who uh, came into my office during office hours and was like, I can predict mortality with 100% accuracy. But the reason they could do that is they were uh, identifying notes where the doctor said, call a priest, <laughs> which is like obviously when you're going to die. So it's not that useful, guys. Um, so the first objective that you might have if you are just coming at this from a straight computer science point of view, like my poor student, is predict something important in healthcare, right? Okay, so let's predict mortality with clinical notes. So this is the example I gave you. I told them, like, predict some mortality with the clinical notes. So clinical notes have a lot of value. A lot of times when people do machine learning, they ignore them, and that's because they look like this. It's gross. You shouldn't use them. You know how we make jokes about doctors' handwritings? Like their typing is worse, much worse. There's no spell check. Why is there no spell check? Like there should be a spell, yeah. Um, so it's very bad, and most of the standard natural language processing algorithms that are out there, they just don't work. They just die. They just give you weird recommendations. So instead what we did is we represented patients as something called a topic vector. Um, so if you don't do machine learning, the way to think about this is you model a patient as an aggregation of all of the notes in their stay. You can model notes as a distribution over a set of topics. Maybe one topic is critical care. Maybe another topic is the patient is confused. And you learn these things, right? So topics are just distributions over words, and you learn what the topics should be from the data that you have, okay? So all these things are learned. You learn it just given the data that exists. 
So the first thing that we did is we checked that these topics correlate well with something important like mortality, and they do. The baseline mortality in Mimic is about 11%, but you can see that there are some topics that have mortality up in like the 30% range, and some topics that have mortality down in the 1% range. And the topics that are more enriched for mortality make sense. Things like respiratory failure are really bad. If you have words in there that look like respiratory failure, then you're probably in critical condition. But uh, it turns out when you go in for cardiovascular surgery, you're usually really healthy and you survive most of the time because surgeons don't want to lower their mortality numbers. You learn a lot about the way the healthcare system works, I'm just going to say, when you do machine learning for health. And doctors possibly are the only group that have a darker sense of humor than computer scientists, so it works out. So here's the first thing we did. We tried to predict mortality in this forward-facing manner. If you use just the state of the art uh, at the time, so this is the acuity scores that doctors themselves use. That's the blue line. You can see as you move forward in hospital time, that gets less and less accurate. It starts out at like 75, 76% accurate and then just tanks, right? That's because that information, the information that's used in these acuity scores, gets stale really quickly. If you use the time-varying topic models, the notes, the model that we learned by itself without the gold standard score, that starts out a little bit lower than the static score but gets better and better over time because you're writing more about the patient. So we're learning more about what their state is. And if you use both sets of information in your machine learning model that's green, you do best. And that's what we would want. So uh, this is what we did. This is from a while ago. This is from 2014. You will notice that the, uh, the other papers that have tackled similar challenges, the same challenge in fact, are not doing much better. What you should be looking at is the AUC column, which you can think of as like an accuracy. You want that number to get higher, but it's not. Even when you, we use really fancy high capacity models like a gated recurrent unit neural network with variable specific decays. And picking on that last example for a minute because it's my favorite, I really like this paper. It's the new baseline that I use for everything. They were trying to explicitly capture and use missingness patterns in recurrent neural networks, yet they didn't do any better. The performance bump is really small. And that's because when it comes to questions in healthcare, often you can't just engineer a better accuracy. There are fundamental limitations to the data that we record in this practice setting. Remember, there's mistakes in practice. If you're learning from those mistakes, there's a cap to how well you're going to be able to do, okay? So cross out important, right? Maybe you don't want to predict just something that's important in healthcare. Let's predict something that's actionable, better objective. Okay, let's predict interventions. That's the treatments that we would be giving people. So these are things like vasopressors, ventilators, right? Things a doctor might actually do to you. So we took the same set of information and expanded it. This time we're using everything from the patient record. We're using the notes, modeled in the same way as topics. We're using the labs, the vitals, we're using the demographics. We turn all those things into matrices. We concatenate those matrices, right? We have one big data matrix for every patient. And that's nice because we can use a matrix per patient so we get a tensor for the whole hospital. And there are models that work really well over tensors. There are things like switching state autoregressive models, long uh, short-term memory networks, which is a kind of recurrent neural network, convolutional neural networks, there are many different kinds of high capacity models that I can use on data once it's represented this way. And the nice news is it works, right? If you use these high capacity models, you can actually predict 
these upcoming needs for interventions, things like an invasive ventilation, a vasopressor, a fluid bolus, pretty well. And there are ways to make neural networks interpretable. So you can look at what happens when you remove a certain feature and see how much information that feature added for your task. You can also ask the model to hallucinate and say, what do people who tend to have this outcome look like in general? But the issue here is this is healthcare. It's not really health. And remember I said we wanted to learn things about human health. So we found that we were predicting these interventions really early. We thought, oh, our model's the worst. We need a fancier model because we keep predicting really early that the patient could be taken off an intervention, right? And then the doctor we were working with said, well, maybe we should look at an actual patient record and see whether you need a fancier model. Because it turns out sometimes there are other factors at play. So this is an example of a patient record. He's a 62-year-old male with a cardiac catheterization. And this is showing you in blue the probability that our model thought the patient could be weaned, taken off the vasopressor. That patient was not actually weaned until hour 45. We predicted that he could probably be weaned somewhere around hour 15, hour 20. You'll notice that we matched up our prediction with what was really put down in the notes. Right around hour 15, the nurse notes, attempt to wean off today. Later on, way past when our prediction says you can probably wean the patient, the nurse writes again, wean them, just keep their systolic blood pressure over 90. But this patient wasn't actually weaned for like a full day after that. It's because if the guy in the room next to you is coding, I'm not weaning you right now, right? Like I have other things going on. But the issue for us as machine learning practitioners is this is the label I'm giving my model. When I tell it learn from practice, this is what I mean. This is the practice it's learning from. And when it predicts something like this, who's right? The note that says maybe you can wean off today and we agree with that, or is it the actual record of when this patient was weaned? And this is not something that you can solve with more complexity in your model or a higher misclassification penalty. This is a legitimate problem with the data that we have. It makes it harder. So scratch that again. We're not going to predict something important in health. We're going to predict actionable insights in healthcare, right? So here's another thing we thought. OK, instead of trying to predict when you need an intervention, let's predict your response to an intervention. So uh, what you might think of for doing this is, I want to see an example of Marzia before she has a treatment and Marzia after she has a treatment. And then I'll be able to learn a function that maps between people before a treatment and people after a treatment. This is a great idea, because then I can predict everybody's individual response to a drug. The problem is we don't really have a lot of that data where you have, you know, a person needs a medication. You say, hold on there. I need to observe you for 12 hours to see what you look like before I give you this. And then I'll give it to you. That doesn't happen. And so instead, we have these really asymmetric data sets where you have some paired data. You have some data that has both a before and after and a lot of unpaired data where I only see you after I've given you the drug or I only see you before I've given you the drug. And so what we use a generative adversarial network. So you've probably seen a lot about GANs, which is what, they've, what they're colloquially referred to as, uh, because they make really nice faces. Has anybody not seen an example of a face made by a GAN? If you haven't, you need to look at this right now. They're very beautiful. They, they work really well. 
So what a GAN does is it tries to generate a new example based on two networks fighting it out. One saying, let me fool you and make a face, and the other saying, oh, no, 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 I've seen examples of real faces and yours doesn't look so good, so make a better one. All right? So we're using this concept to learn what kinds of drug responses people might have. And the way we use this is we say, let's learn what people look like generally before they get a drug, and what people look like generally after they get a drug, and we'll use that to help understand how mappings might happen. And this also works, right? So we actually did significantly better at predicting people's responses to a drug, their actual blood pressure that they would have after they were given a drug than if you don't use this unpaired data. But here's, so here's a, you know, everything has a but in research. Um, would you deploy this model? Like if a doctor came to you and said, aha, would you like to deploy your model in my hospital? And you had made this, would you? I mean, the answer is no, say no. Um, but yeah, if, if anybody ever asks you this, just say, Marzia said no. Um, think about who we probably have a lot of this data on. So uh, particularly in the United States, right, where you might get access to certain treatments based on the kinds of insurance you have, right? You might have a lot of really good paired data on certain kinds of people. And so you might be really accurate at forecasting responses in certain kinds of people and not so good in other kinds of people. So another thing that we tried to modify here is like, let's not just predict stuff. Let's take a higher level view and try to create actionable insights in healthcare. In this case, by looking at the natural way that a doctor might want to see data represented. And so one of the things that we've been focusing on recently is taking the images from radiology and turning those into the text that a doctor might have written about that particular image. Because that's not just a risk score or a forecast, it's actually something that the human doctor can edit and incorporate into their practice, and so it could be more meaningful for them. And the nice thing about this structure is if we learn on a lot of kinds of radiology reports what sorts of data work best when we map them to text, then that could be extensible. That's something you could think about deploying. And the fun thing here is we can evaluate both whether it's clinically valuable, whether we predict the right risk scores, and whether it's clinically uh, or human coherent, whether a human can read it and understand it. Right? So we have two forms in our objective function. All right. So I told you about all these fancy things that you can do with machine learning. right? And then I, I've told you a few times, like, maybe don't deploy these things. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about why I think you should be very, uh, there's a difference between research that you do for research's sake and something that you might deploy in practice. And that's because in health, there are these questions beyond the obvious. We're not just recognizing dogs in ImageNet, right? There are real human relationships in health. Doctors take care of patients. And it's important to ask whether technology will make those things better, those relationships better, with all of the good and bad that exists in them, or make them worse. So if we're talking about what kind of healthcare is healthy, the natural thing you should be thinking about is inequality. And when I say inequality or inequity, there's three kinds that I usually talk about. There's inequity of access. So this is maybe Mary and Ian, two people, 
would not get access to the same category of doctors, maybe because they have different insurance or they live in different areas. There's inequality of treatment. So let's say that Mary and Ian both have access to the same doctors. But Mary doesn't get the same kinds of treatments that Ian does, even though they have the same lab tests, even though they complain about the same things. So for example, women often are underdiagnosed for cardiovascular disease, even when they say the same words and have the same lab values. And then finally, inequality of outcome. So this is when maybe I get the same access to a doctor, maybe that doctor gives me the same treatment, but because of the existing social determinants, I live in a food desert, right? I don't have uh, access to public transportation. There's rampant pollution in the place I grow up. I don't have the same outcome. And right, these are, these are things that you should see in all machine learning for health papers. Have I addressed any of these with the solution that I'm coming up with? And ethics is, is not new in health, by the way, right? Like this is, this is something that I always think really is really funny. People say, how do you do ethical machine learning in health? And I say, well, Ethics are ethics, right? And doctors have struggled with this for a really long time. It's not like there haven't been issues with clinical trial populations not reflecting actual humans, as we've discussed, or studies that get retracted because they actually don't make sense, or conflicts of interest being involved in research. It's that now we've added machine learning, and so we're adding this extra set of rules, and we want to know how to operate within them. The hard part is, let's say I want to train an ethical machine learning model. Well, doctors have a hard time being ethical even with all of their training, right? So doctors are humans and humans are biased and there's a very robust literature that documents that healthcare is biased. And the healthcare biases that we see follow the biases of society, right? So you can bet if I don't like people of a specific race or a specific gender or a specific weight, that's going to show up at a macro level in the healthcare that they receive. And so in this setting, what we really want to make sure we're doing is improving healthcare for all, not just for some. And the reason that I phrase it that way is, let's go back to the objective, right? Let's modify it one more time, not just healthcare, human health, create actionable insights in human health. Remember that very first cool paper we talked about, model the topics, predict the mortality? Let's look at some of those topics, shall we, right? So one of them is, uh, looks like it's a COPD uh, topic, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder. And I've just shown you the topic enrichment. What proportion of people have that topic? A lot. And you can see it varies by ethnicity, by gender, and by insurance type. And you could say, fine, so what? Maybe more women than men actually come in with COPD, right? That's a thing that could happen, right? Same thing with substance abuse. Maybe more men than women actually come in for substance abuse. So you're just learning these topics like more people are, are having this written about them. And that could be justifiable. What's not justifiable is having unfair accuracies when you're predicting conditions for people. And so the performance of our models is not equal. It's not equitable across people of different race, people of different gender, and people of different insurance type. And so if you deployed this model today, it would predict better in certain people. That's not to say it wouldn't holistically be better than your average doctor. It's to say, I can quantify this in an algorithm. We often do not quantify it in humans. 
We don't say, Marzia just seems to perform a lot better on women than men. Weird. But we can quantify it in an algorithm. And so what do we do now that we can quantify it? A final thing that I'm going to talk to you about before I talk about uh, high-level questions for the future is uh, maybe sometimes it's important to use machine learning to interrogate how healthcare is happening, not to predict something or you know, categorize a, a risk score. There is this really great paper that I read about why some people get more aggressive end-of-life care. It's in Ontario. In Ontario, immigrants, except for those from Northern and Western Europe, experience more aggressive end-of-life care relative to long-standing residents, and they're more likely to die in the intensive care unit. That sucks. That probably shouldn't be true, right? And there's a really nice phrase in the paper, actually, where, where uh, they, they tried to say it really nicely. They're like, we don't know exactly why this happens. They warrants more investigation. And so uh, I had a master's student um, a couple years ago take a look at this. And so one of our theories is that this could be related to mistrust. So there's a well-known uh, problem in the United States uh, between African-Americans and doctors where African-American patients don't trust their doctors, and specifically with respect to end-of-life care. And it's because Historically, they probably should not have trusted their doctors with respect to end-of-life care recommendations. And so when there is this mistrust, often you can get this aggressive end-of-life care, which is a bad outcome from everybody. So just to be clear, we chose the outcome of aggressive end-of-life care because it's bad for everyone, right? It means that you have very painful final moments that, that do not lead to you surviving, right? You die anyway. And that you are now being hooked up to all these machines, having this extra care that is expensive and, uh, and good for nobody, right? So this is why we chose this outcome specifically to investigate. So we looked at the MIMIC data set, and the first gut check that we did was testing whether there were longer durations of these aggressive treatments at end-of-life care specifically. And we found that this is true. So uh, it turns out that African-Americans have these longer durations of aggressive end-of-life care specifically. And then what we wanted to test is, could this be a result of mistrust? And when we say mistrust, what we mean is, if your doctor recommends hospice, do you accept their advice? And so here's how we are going to detect this. We're going to train a model to algorithmically model what does mistrust look like in a clinical note. So we found examples of non-compliance in notes where uh, the notes say things like the patient refused to sign consent, very frustrated, mistrusting of the healthcare system, poor medication compliance and follow-up. And I mean, these obviously there are flaws here. Just like with every other uh, thing that we've talked about in the healthcare system, this is our best labeling of what uh, uh, a categorization of the mistrustfulness level of a note, right? So we labeled some of these. And then we tried to train a model to understand what kind of mistrust might be available in the note. So we also use this structured data um, to decide whether there was mistrust. So is the patient's comfort being taken seriously? Was the patient being treated like a threat? Uh, was the patient's pain being managed? Often, uh, if there's mistrust, the patient doesn't gain, get the amount of pain medication they ask for. And was there good communication between faculty, or faculty, between staff and the family? Oh, that's a separate, separate bag of worms. Um, 
So then we try to model this mistrust, right? So we train a simple model that says, here are examples of mistrustful interactions. Generalize, tell us where you think there is mistrust, and then let's see if mistrust is a factor in aggressive end-of-life care. And so it turns out that uh, mistrust actually seems to play a large part in this aggressive end-of-life care. So while mistrustful patients were categorized as agitated and in pain, trustful patients were categorized as having no pain and being calm. And your median black patient in Mimic had a statistically significantly higher mistrust score than the median white patient. What this looks like when we try to use it in prediction is that mistrust actually plays the largest role in categorizing this disparity. Race plays a large role, but mistrust trumps just race. Because there were some people who trusted the doctor and then they got the better care, even though uh, they were African-American and might have historically not have trusted the doctor. And then there were some white patients who did not trust the doctor, were deemed as aggressive, and they also got aggressive end-of-life care. But they are correlated. And then the final thing that we wanted to check was whether maybe this mistrusting is just cheating. Maybe it's just one of those risk scores that you already have. So we show here that actually our mistrust score is not correlated with any of the mistrust scores or with the acuity scores that exist in the ICU. It's more correlated with things like noncompliance and a demand for an autopsy because you believe that a medical error was made. So, that's all of the work that, I, that I'm going to present, I promise. I know it's, it's, it's a lot. Um, and now what I'd like to walk through briefly is what I think, because we're in Canada, uh, what I think Canadians should be doing in this space, right? Okay, recommendation number one. Toronto has a very limited time to lead in machine learning for health. We have this fantastic mixture of technical and medical talent. And the only thing we're really limited by is our vision and the resources that we're willing to allocate towards those, uh, that vision. And this field is moving very quickly. So machine learning is rapidly growing into the healthcare space. This is just a graph of all of the major machine learning conferences that have started to have a health component to them where they explicitly ask for health-related work to be submitted. You can see there, there are a lot. And machine learning is now regulated as an advice giver in the United States. So the FDA clears algorithms to be a part of the medical system. I was on an NIH panel. It's the, one of the most frightening things I've ever been on because like they, it's not like an academic talk where like I give a talk and you ask a question. It's a regulator asking you, okay, if your model says this, should I allow it to work in a patient? And you're like, oh, no. What? What do you mean work in a patient? Um, but this is real. These algorithms perform really well, even if they're biased. Maybe they're less biased than the average human. When are we comfortable letting them actually work in a real setting? And that's, that's a human question, right? This is something that the FDA is actively deciding now. We are in a unique position to promote robust machine learning in health and understand what kinds of algorithms should be cleared and should not be cleared. Because we operate in this diverse urban-rural setting, right? Ontario has both, which is really fantastic. And we have a single-payer system, which we could use to our advantage. Which brings me to my second thing. Let's talk about race. Why is there no ethnicity data in Canada? Can somebody explain this to me? Is it because 
Bingo! It's so crazy. I don't understand it. It still drives me crazy. I don't understand it. Uh, I think that the question here is the reason that we collect race in America is because of the Civil Rights Act. Because black patients were just dying a lot. Hmm. But if we couldn't track that black patients were dying, we couldn't verify it. The reason that they track race in the UK is because of the anti-racism laws. So that they can verify that you don't just randomly have more patients of a specific race dying. In Canada, where our nearest neighbors, I would argue, are the UK and the US, it feels like we should probably include race as a factor. And that's very easy to do. You just add an extra column in RPDB. It's a protected health attribute. It's not something that your random person can look at. It's something that a researcher can audit to keep in compliance with civil rights era laws in the United States or anti-racism laws in the United Kingdom. So, so uh, the story behind this is I, I was going on and on about how like we will build these great machine learning models and then we can use them all around the world and uh, we'll, we'll have to make sure that you know, they are fair uh, as, as I have done in my other models that I've trained in American data and a doctor who had been trained in the US stopped me and he's like, Marzia, I don't think you know yet. Nobody told you. Like, come here, I need to tell you something. Um, we can't do machine learning for health that the world will accept if we don't have race. Because America will ask us, can you certify that you don't predict significantly worse for black women? And we will say, oh, we can't, actually, because we don't know who's black. And that sucks. This needs to change. Please change it. I'm not Canadian yet, so, you know, you guys. So there was a proposal to um, add ethnicity in the prior government that was obviously killed when the new government came in, in Ontario. Should we add it in all of Canada's EHR? Yes, 100%. Would I like for it to happen here as quickly as possible and be willing to take that first? Yes, I would definitely take that. We should have ethnicity. There's no reason not to. Our, like all of our, our I mean, whatever you want to call them, nearest neighbors, competitors, collaborators, all of our peers do it. We should do it too. Um, and the reason why is because we don't want to learn unintended features. If we are just learning proxies for race and using those to predict things, that's really bad, right? So we need to have this data. All right, next thing. Understanding trust has real impact. So the last paper that I presented is not just like a cute exploration. I was shocked by, by these papers. I'm always shocked by these papers, but they're there. Go read them. Be shocked with me. Physician-patient race match reduces the likelihood of inpatient mortality by 14 percentage points. When your race matches your doctor's race. Black doctors are somewhere between 50 to 72% more successful at getting black male patients to agree to things like diabetes tests, flu shots, cholesterol screening, et cetera. Right? So these are, these are good things. Here's the one that really gets me. Gender concordance. Being treated by a, uh, a female doctor, if you are female, increases a patient's probability of heart attack survival. This effect is driven by increased mortality when male physicians treat female patients. Let's look at this fun quote at the bottom. Mortality rates decrease when male physicians practice with more female colleagues or have treated more female patients in the past. So there's a dose-response effect. 
The more women you're around, the fewer you kill. That's great. Uh, that should probably not be true, right? So understanding not just that we can predict something fancy as a risk score, but that we can help doctors actually communicate with their patients, have real trust, have a real relationship, that's really valuable too, because this is an actual problem. Because our goal is not to predict a fancy risk score, right? Our goal is actually to improve medical practice. And if doctors are burnt out and don't have time to be empathetic, but we know that doctors being, being told to be compassionate for something like 40 seconds actually reduces patient anxiety and improves their recovery rates, then this is a goal worth having. Right? This is something we should obviously do. And I, I put this picture up there because I was giving a talk once to a bunch of like tech execs. And at the end of my talk, they were like, so you're making you know, an algorithm so that we can do the best care, like Dr. House. And I was like, he was a bad man. Did we watch the same show? He was so horrible. That's not the care we want to provide. Um, and the last thing is about data, right? So looping it back. Health data is a resource and we should treat it that way. All health data is, all data is valuable, right? There's a lot of value in data, but health data is particularly valuable. We need robust algorithms that can train on large amounts of data and learn things that are generally true about human health and healthcare. Most of the research that I have presented today with very little exception is based on this one resource, which means, guess what guys? All of the algorithms that are trained are going to work really well for people in Boston and not so well for Canadians. Do you know why that's true? Because I can't get access to Canadian health data. It doesn't matter that I'm a Canadian professor sitting in a Canadian university training Canadian graduate students. All of the graduate students that take my machine learning for health class at University of Toronto, they use this data. They don't use Canadian data because they cannot get access to it. MIMIC, this American health data, has a decade of vetted access. So it's been around since 2003. There haven't been any lawsuits, no newspaper headlines. It's not a privacy failure. They vet you. They make you sign a data usage access agreement. The data has been de-identified to a HIPAA compliance standard, and then they give you the data. And this model works. It's available. This is the, there's, these are just statistics of, about how many grants have been written using it, how many people have cited this data, how many new researchers are approved to use it every day. It's all very well and good to say that we have this fantastic single-payer system with all of this data and we're so diverse, except that we don't track ethnicity and we don't give researchers access to that data. So we're not using it right now. And so the question that I want to leave you with is, in machine learning, there's uh, two contrasting stories. So there's uh, speech and there's vision, okay? So what I mean by speech or vision is uh, every machine learning department, or sorry, every computer science department will hire machine learning people. They'll hire like a theory person, they'll hire a health person, they'll hire a text person, they hire a vision person. You know who they don't hire? They don't hire speech people. And they haven't for more than 10 years. Do you know why? the data sets are all private. Nobody can get access to them except the companies. Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, Google. Think about Alexa, Google Home. State-of-the-art machine learning in speech is only done in companies now. You can't train a machine learning PhD student 
to do state-of-the-art speech unless you are at a company because they have all the data and they're not giving it to you. In contrast, 10 years ago, Envision, the people who made the big data sets open sourced them like Mimic. They made these open benchmarks and so now you do state-of-the-art vision in the academic setting. Companies will do it too. They'll take the latest thing that you did and they'll like add a special extra set of data they have. But that community is open and so by contrast, we can hire professors, we can train students, and we can audit algorithms that companies put out. You think you can audit Alexa? Do you have data? Nobody does. But we can audit vision. That's because the community made a decision to keep the data academic for vetted use with researchers. And I think that's where we need to go for health. Thank you. <laughs>